Hi, everybody. Uh, welcome to, uh, I know, right, uh, the recruiting podcast that takes on all things that recruiters care about. So today's subject, um, the resume. The resume survives uh, over a very long period of time. It is still the instrument we use to send our people to our clients. But the question is, in today's candidate crazy modern marketplace, is it still the same instrument? Do we look at it the same way? Do our clients look at it the same way? So we're gonna we're gonna dig into that. So first, a history, a quick history of the resume. So check this out: the first resume that is known to man was sent by Leonardo da Vinci, who apparently like created everything. But in 1482, uh, he wrote a letter to the Duke of Milan looking for patronage. Um, and he basically set out his skill sets and accomplishments and I don't know, a hyperlink uh, to uh, the Mona Lisa, but that's the first known resume. And then it sort of disappears uh, for several hundred years and then starts regaining popularity in America in the 1930s, which makes sense. Things get urbanized, people start hiring people in offices. By 1950, you literally cannot get a job anymore without a resume. It becomes a, a prerequisite. And then come the 1980s and the PC and IBM, and it makes getting your resume together easier. And as the workforce becomes more mobile, it becomes an easier tool to use. The next big shift is obviously the 1990s and the internet and the advents of things like Monster and Career Builder, which you know not only makes a, a resume easier, but it, it allows you to publish a resume without you actually going after advertisers and, and sending uh, your resume to specific ads. You publish a resume, it makes you available to recruiters for the first time recruiters can find you. And at, at around the same time, the basic way clients started to get resumes was you emailing to a specific company. They have websites, they all have contact us, here are our jobs. It allowed candidates for the first time to go directly to companies, which was not always great news for recruiters, obviously. Um, and then in 2003, with the advent of LinkedIn, we get this latest generation, which is your resume is essentially part of your LinkedIn profile. So you sort of have this perpetual resume, perpetually published. Um, and now everyone who's on LinkedIn, which is just about everyone, essentially has, by way of profile, their resume. But still, our companies want a formal resume when it comes time to actually uh, looking at candidates. And as a lot of us recruiters know, Watch out if your LinkedIn profile does not match your resume, uh, which a lot of our clients get freaked out about. So I want to take on this idea of the resume has been around forever. It doesn't appear to be going anywhere. But do we look at it differently? And as I always do on these uh, on these podcasts, uh, I don't want to just talk to recruiters about it because we're, we're very biased. So uh, I, I brought in a subject matter expert, uh, Jason Reynolds, who's been in technology sales for nearly 20 years currently the chief revenue officer with AssistRx, but he's been involved with sales teams and hiring for sales teams anywhere from startups to huge $500 million annual uh, operations. So, Jason, fair to say that you've uh, you've looked at a lot of resumes over, over the last 20 years, yes? Absolutely, and just uh, to give you one perspective, you know, my title at AssistRx is Executive Vice President of Commercial Operations. I'd love to be the chief revenue officer, but oh, my co-founder... 
It's all I right. Just promoted I promoted you. My- <laughs> yes, you did. My co-founder uh, Edward Hensley probably wouldn't be too uh, too fond of me stealing, <laughs> stealing his job yet, Danny. But yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I think the resume is still an indispensable part of a, a screening process, right? And from a, a candidate perspective, you know, I think what you're trying to do is put your best foot forward, um, knowing that you're probably going to get somebody who's not going to give it much more than a you know, 90 second to, to two or three minute look over to decide whether or not they want to include you in their interview process and, and take discussions further or not. So it's a, a really important, um, you know, a document that really needs to articulate, you know, why somebody should engage in a further conversation with you from my perspective. Yeah, you know, it's funny you mentioned that 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 uh, amount of time because Ladders came out with this uh, sort of huge study in 2012, and I don't know how they actually did this, but the study said that the average manager that the use of the world um, spends six seconds per resume. Um, and you mentioned 90 seconds, and and I like to think of myself as really looking through a resume and trying to to make a decision as to whether to pursue a candidate. But just about everything you read says no resume has ever been completely read. Um, that we don't do that. That we look for certain key words. That we just don't have time to look at somebody's life story. And you know, if you think back to the job changes you've made. You know, candidates like labor and 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 suffer and anguish over their resumes. And in reality, according to most studies, we don't really read them as as a complete document. Have you ever thought about that? Like, where do your eyes go when you look at a resume? What do you what do you find yourself doing? No, it's a great question. And um, you know, from my perspective, you know, eventually, as you get into a deeper interview process with somebody, you are spending more time, you know, looking sure. at the resume in more complete detail and asking questions about things that a candidate articulates about themselves or experiences that they had. But no, it's I think it's absolutely true that, you know, the majority of managers, you know, screening lots and lots of candidates don't have a tremendous amount of time. And, and what I traditionally look at, obviously, I'm coming from a, you know, a sales slash commercial right. focus when I'm looking at a resume is um, people who quantify um, their achievements uh, as opposed to speak qualitatively about themselves. I personally get very turned off by people who, you know, describe what they've done, but don't really point to how they've helped the company, you know, increase revenue, reduce expense, um, enter a new, you know, market, um, you know, work cross-functionally and and achieved X in a project. Um, So for me, you know, that's a big screening mechanism when I see somebody who puts their numbers on the table and talks about how they've achieved, you know, to quota, and I see a level of consistency. That that's somebody who sparks my interest, and somebody I know that typically is, um, you know, very uh, competitive and um, cares about, you know, how you know they perform in terms of the benefits of the companies that they work for. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well said. I, I think it's a hard mental juxtaposition for candidates. I've been preaching it for thirty years, and and candidates don't want to hear it because when you recruit them. You know, their typical response to a headhunter like me is, hey, dude, you called me. So, you know, if if, if I got to, like, work hard to get this job, then I'll just stay where I am. But that that isn't realistic because the process is you have to submit a resume and you have to think about the reader, right? Like the, the reader cares, has their own concerns. So what's in it for the reader and for a sales manager, it's how much did you sell? What was your you know, territory and what did it yield and, and who do you call on and what's the deal size? And, and if there were a hundred reps, were you number three or number 97? And I think people don't realize that 
until you get into a deeper interview, like you said, when you get into a deeper interview, then you're going to ask them questions about their commute and, you know, whether they own a home and whether they're happy. But a resume is about this is what I bring to you, the client who might hire me. And it's an advertisement. It's, it's not an affidavit. Yeah, I think you're you're exactly right in terms of the way you just used the word advertisement, Danny. That you know, it's really a marketing document, right? It's it's intended right. to put put your um, you know accomplishments out in a public forum and give somebody a reason you know to engage in a in a deeper dialogue with you. I think you know the other thing that's very telling in resumes is you know the quality of um, you know the formatting, the grammar, the spelling. Yeah. Um, you know, I find a lot of people who you kind of sit there and you look at it and you say, would this be somebody I want communicating with my customers? Um, right. You know, based upon the fact that the single most important, you know, document they have to represent themselves, you know, might be done so poorly from those, you know, perspectives I just shared. So I might be yeah. old school and old fashioned, you know, from that perspective. Um, but I do think it matters. I, you know, you, you really need to take the time to make sure that that one slash two page, you know, document, um, is a, is a piece of art um, and not filled with any mistakes from, from those um, you know, aspects of you know, spelling and formatting and font and grammar um, and that it represents you the way you'd want to be represented, uh, represented in terms of the quality of you know, how you speak about yourself in, in written format. Yeah. I, I, and so now you're getting into like a big part of what I want to talk about, which is we're having this discussion in the very last month of 2017. And everybody talks about the quote millennials, which is really an old fashioned term because the, the, the oldest millennials are in their late thirties now. Um, and really we're just talking about young people, whether you call them Gen Z or next gen or whatever. Um, and, you know, I've seen all kinds of studies that say, you know, they're, they grew up with texting. Um, and they're so they're they're not as used to you and I are to grammar and to syntax, um, and they also don't want to stay at a job for as long as I was taught. I was I was taught you stay at a job as long as it's working, and if you get a progressive job somewhere else, you would move for your own sake or your family's sake. But you know you do the best job as long as you can until something better comes along, and they very often, according to most sociology studies, say they're going to stay two or three years max just because they don't do anything for longer than that. So, you know, at what point does that cross over into your evaluation? In other words, you know, 10 years ago, if I was on the phone with a, a client, they would have said, Oh my God, he made a mistake in his resume. I, I, there's no way I'm going to interview this guy for the same reasons you articulated. But I, I'm wondering whether we're, are we at a point where we have to, rethink and I'm not saying give a break to obviously I'm not going to interview somebody who you know uh, puts OMG in their resume or an emoji but but if if somebody has everything else you're looking for but you saw a grammatical error or the job hopping which you know 10 years ago would have been the number one reason why they wouldn't see our candidates he's had too many moves have you in, in any way shape or form in a conscious way said I've got to make some concessions to this younger viewpoint. No, great question, Danny. I think there's two separate issues you've asked about there. You know, one relates yeah. to, you know, would I screen somebody out based on, you know, a quality standard of, you know, grammar, right. spelling, et cetera. And then the second thing that you've you know, articulated there is, you know, how do I think about it in terms of the world we live in today and yeah. you know, the younger, the younger generation compared to the you know generation where, you know, we grew up in where our parents, you know, 
worked for the same company for 30, 40 right. years and, you know, passed down the same kind of thought process to us. And um, right. I need to be a little bit careful here, Danny, because I have two millennial age daughters uh, <laughs> in, in, in college who are, you know, very active looking at internships and, you know, thinking about their careers. But I, I guess I would say a couple of things. You know, one is I, I certainly necessarily wouldn't disqualify somebody from, you know, a wrong period here or a wrong structure sentence there. But, you know, you got to look at the body of work. And, and if, you know, you're not taking the time to make sure you have something quality that's representing you and how you market yourself, I, I think that speaks volumes about the other challenges you might have running, you know, working with them. So I, I don't want to be as dogmatic to say, you know, one spelling mistake or, or whatnot, but I think you right. got to look at the body body of work. Um, mm -hmm. you know, kind of, that's kind of my first perspective. You know, and then I think the great thing about the millennial generation or, you know, the, the younger emerging, you know, workforce that we have, um, you know, is the fact that these folks are far more worldly and global in their thinking than I ever was at their yeah. age. Um, yes. And the other great thing about this generation is that there is a tremendous amount of folks doing side hustles, which is, you know, a terminology I probably hadn't heard of until a couple of years ago, the, the side hustle. Um, you know, but it really speaks to people wanting to make, you know, a difference in the world. I think you've got to look yeah. at it from a very, very different lens and that people aren't just looking for a job. They're looking for a mission, right? They want to go to work right. you know, for a company um, and a manager that are you know, making a difference in the world and understand what their role is in that and not just show up for a paycheck. Um, and that's, you know, refreshing. And it's also challenging in terms of, you know, as you talked about, keeping those folks, you know, on board and um, hence not seeing them have a different job every, you know, 12 to, to 36 months. Right. Right, right, right. And, and and I think they get short shrift, too. I mean, I don't know what your experience has been, but I have I have half a dozen um, uh, people in their 20s who come in every day and crush it and work really hard. So I'm, I'm really opposed to that whole entitlement. They don't work hard. They're lazy. They're not capable of empathy. I, I just haven't seen that. I, I, I think... I, I think everybody thinks that young people are narcissistic because we all are when we're young, um, and it's just their time. But I, but the job hopping one is a real interesting one because <clears throat> I've been asked Danny part of my website, and it's it's a question we get every month. Like clients are saying, some old school client says this guy's had three jobs in eight years, and I'm not paying you know you a recruiter's fee and and ramping them up and getting them on the health benefits and have them leave in two years, and we do have some, um, I guess you'd have to say more progressive clients, especially in the sales world, who say, you know what, if if this guy or a woman comes in and 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 brings in a bunch of major accounts and makes a lot of money for herself and the company, and then a year and a half later she says hey I found a new job or I want to live in San Francisco or whatever then I just have to say no that's how it works and and I just have to be aware of that uh, I think that's a really hard uh, mind shift to make for someone who's been in the hiring position for a very long period of time but I think at some point we're gonna to have to get used to seeing resumes where there's four jobs in ten years and saying normal um, you know, I, I, for the first time in my career, I'm seeing clients saying, this guy's only had one job in 14 years, so I, he scares me a little bit. Like, does he have any breadth of knowledge or does he still have fire in his belly? You know, so it does seem like a paradigm shift there that might even be healthy. Yeah, no, um, I, I think at the end of the day, it's about understanding the reasons why people make changes. And, you know, I can speak yeah. to it from, from the lens of not only 
a hiring perspective, but also myself, right? So right. in my career, I've had very long tenured jobs and I've had many jobs that are, you know, two years or less uh, and, and made moves. And sometimes those moves were smart and sometimes they weren't. And sometimes they were, you know, driven by me making a change. And sometimes they were driven by the circumstances of the company and the, and the leadership team. So, you know, yeah. I think at the end of the day, um, and I hate to use that expression because it's so overused, it's really about understanding somebody's individual journey and understanding their story. And so from a candidate perspective, I think, you know, you just need to be prepared to have a really engaging conversation and explain, yeah. you know, what mot- what motivates you, you know, what it is that makes you, you know, different, why you've made certain changes and, and having a succinct story. I, I can tell you oftentimes, um, people seem very afraid to admit their weaknesses or, you know, mistakes that they've made. And, and the more coherent you can be to tell your story and, and help people understand the whys, I think the less fear they have of, you know, maybe somebody who's moved around, you know, every two right. years. Um, because, you know, the reality is, is a lot of those folks, you know, sometimes have been moved on because they didn't perform. Um, exactly. And they got out right. and they got out before somebody else got them out. So I think that's why you get people who are a little suspect of, you know, people have done some job hopping because, you know, more often than not, from my experience, that's usually the reason why, but it's not the story for everybody. Right, exactly. Yeah. And I think, you know, we place a lot of salespeople, and obviously you've hired sales forces, and I think you and I might be a little uh, more uh, biased in that direction because, I mean, the last guy or woman standing in most companies is the top sales producer. Uh, You don't let that person uh, go very readily. So generally, it's because the person wasn't performing. How about education? Um, I don't know if you've had this experience yet, but I'm I'm now getting to that point in my career where I get asked to speak at at colleges um, about you know how to get a job because as you say, it just scares the hell out of some of these millennials. They're they're in this gig economy where they get a degree and doesn't necessarily open anything up, and I try to be honest with them, um, and I can almost see the the heads of the departments in the back of the room getting sweaty because they'll ask me, how important are my grades? And I'll say, uh, not very. Uh, you, I've, I've never had a client ask me for someone with a 4.0. Um, how important is it that I you know, went to a, uh, an Ivy League school or a great school? Yeah, it doesn't matter. Uh, and, you know, uh, if you're an engineer, yeah, certainly there are certain engineering schools that have great names like MIT. Um, certainly medical schools have have more elite medical schools. But um, I've never had anybody say, you know, this guy went to UConn versus the University of Maryland. Um, so I'm not going to hire him, even though he's got 10 good, good years of experience in the my my experience is once you get out in the work world, um, they certainly want you to have a degree. But they don't seem to much care what the degree is in, nor do they much seem to care what your grades were. Um, it's more of a verifying that this person, you know, has reached a level of of study. Therefore, they were committed to studying. Or, as one hiring authority told me, I don't really care about this degree. I just it just tells me he or she was able to finish something in their life. So that means they're going to be able to finish a project for me. What are your thoughts about grades in schools and degrees when you look at resumes? I think there's an expression that I've heard some of the younger uh, folks in my life make that's not just the grades you make, but the hands you shake, right? Um, and that is, um, I think, the message that I would you know, send to people, which is your grades do matter uh, initially. I, I absolutely yeah. think they do, right? Because it's a reflection of how hard you worked, how much pride you have in yourself. And certainly, yeah. I don't think it makes a difference if you've got a 3.6 versus a 3.4. 
Although right. there are some some professions and occupations where your ability to get in the higher echelons of you know engineering and other things that that might be a screener or you know maybe for somebody who's going into you know the top top of the world from a right. you know consulting you know consulting perspective with McKinsey or something. But for yeah. you know ninety nine percent of the jobs out there, I, I, I'd agree with you. Um, that it's not, you know, the, the primary driver, but I still do think it matters, and it matters to me when I look at a resume of somebody um, who's young and emerging in their career, because it speaks to, you know, effort, hard work, you know, pride of ownership. Um, but like I said, I'm not saying, well, this candidate is a three-four, and this one's a three-three, um, and, and therefore I take the three-four. Right. Um, yeah, yeah, and then yeah. from a, from a, you know, where they matriculated from perspective. You know, I, I I totally agree. Whether you went to you know a state school or whether you went to Harvard, um, you know, I, I don't think it it really matters because everybody has a story around you know why they chose where they went. Some people are driven because you know they had to pay pay for it themselves, or and and it drove them to a state school. Um, some people you know decided to play Division One sports or Division Three sports, and has that influenced their choice? Um, you know, I think it's just more about being able to articulate. The kind of things you engaged in at college, and, and you know, did you like to learn, and, and what did you find challenging, and were you involved there more than just showing up to class and getting a grade? Like, were you involved in clubs? Were you involved in, you know, activities? Were you, you know, involved in a side business? Um, you know, I, I want to see people who are, you know, intellectually curious and, and want to learn. Right. Um, right. You know, more than I care about whether they got their degree from, you know, institution X versus institution Y. Yeah, I I totally agree. I, I was at a uh, a conference where uh, Fareed Zakaria uh, spoke at the conference, the the CNN guy, and you know he's he had written a book about how liberal arts matters, and he was just basically saying college is really about critical thinking, like learning how to think and solve problems, because even the IT people. Um, I mean, you know this, you've been in technology sales, like the technology of, of 15 years ago, it literally makes no difference. There's no point talking about it. It doesn't have anything to do with today's uh, stuff. But there are people that were selling technology 15 years ago that can sell it today because they, they know how to critically think. They know how to solve problems. They know how to read clients. They know uh, how to figure out what a market needs and then how to fill that. And that's about they learned how to think, not necessarily I got this degree, but I guess my, I'm glad we're in agreement because my point is, and maybe these are, you know, your kids or your kids' friends, but, you know, you and I will go, the difference between a 3-2 and a 3-6, who really cares? But but when they're in those uh, classes, they get the sense from their professors that it's the most important thing in the world and nobody's going to talk to them if they don't get a 4-0 and, you know, they're they're taking too much coffee and Adderall and, and, and they're crying in their sleep uh, over these things that, you know, essentially are meaningless, and yet the the institutions have a vested interest in making them feel like they're more important. I, I get a lot of people saying to me, my professor said if I don't get an MBA by the time I'm 30, uh, I'm never going to make any money. And these people are in sales, and I'm like, how are you doing in sales? I'm doing great. I'm crushing it. Well, but don't worry about it. You know, there's a there's a certain academic vested interest here in these degree programs. And I, and I say that as a guy with a master's degree. I, it's not like I'm against uh, schooling. It's just my experiences. And you're right. If you're young, you have to sell your education. But as you get deeper into your career, it seems to have uh, uh, less value, to, uh, at least to me. A couple of the topics. Most studies say that as much as, and this shocks even me, and I've been at this forever, as, as much as 40% of what's on a resume is either exaggerated or flat-out false. 
do you find yourself even unconsciously like allowing for a certain amount of fluff in a resume? Do you do you expect hyperbole? Do you say I get he he or she's trying to trying to make it seem like they're the greatest thing in the world? Uh, obviously, you've got certain numbers that you could. You know, if someone told you they did five hundred million dollars worth of sales in a in a niche that generally has three or four, then it's obvious. But people do tend to try to cast a wide net and make it look like they could do anything for anybody. Are you aware of it? Do you cross-reference their LinkedIn page to see if this is real? Do you find yourself doing references on people you know? What's your feeling about the hyperbolic aspects of resumes? Yeah, I tend to come from the school of you know believing what people tell me about themselves and believing yeah. most people are, are good-hearted by nature and, and yeah. don't lie, but I know it, it does happen. And I think the hiring process that I've you know lived by you know going back you know, roughly 15 years now is called top grading for sales. And um, the top grading methodology is all about behavioral interviewing um, yeah. in, a very, in a very prescriptive process of how you do it, um, as well as in, in terms of how you check references, et cetera. So um, Could I, you give I think an example of that for our, for our listeners, an example of behavioral interviewing would be? Yeah, a great example would be, you know, asking, you know, questions that are very specific about, um, a, a behavior, like how coachable are they? You know, tell me about the last time um, you got feedback from a manager, you know, post a mm-hmm. customer call or a negotiation on a contract. And, you know, how did you feel about it? Um, that's a, that's an right. example of, of, of trying to understand somebody's behavior. Um, and obviously from a sales perspective, it's, you know, really easy to talk through, um, you know, people's past history and performance. And, you know, tell me about the single most um proud accomplishment you've had in your career and, and why. So, you know, at the end of the day, when people articulate things um, in their resume um, from from a behavioral interviewing style, you're really trying to get down to specifics and examples and get people to uh, articulate and illustrate, um, you know, how they support it. So, so from my perspective, I don't spend a lot of time worrying about that because if somebody can't tell me a cogent story to support something qualitative in their, you know, their resume or their experience, um, you kind of get the you know, yeah. lie meter, the liar meter, you know, <laughs> yeah. re- re- registering all through a process like that. And and I just couldn't more, you know, from a, you know, interviewing style approach, um, you know, couldn't more highly recommend the top grading process. It, it's been a real successful, successful thing for me. And obviously when you're, you know, hiring people, it's the single most important thing you do in terms of the performance of your team and your company. Um, so you got to really spend a lot of time you know, doing it and, and doing it right. Uh, you know, people ask me to name common denominators among successful executives. I would say behavioral interviewing um, and specifically the top grading methodology uh, has to be on that list of common denominators. People, successful people use it. And, and, and it's what you're not doing by doing that that is so great because the majority of our clients literally simply do a reverse chronology of a resume on a phone interview. So, I mean, they're literally just getting on the phone and saying, okay, you're currently at Oracle. Tell me what you do there. Well, it says right in the resume what they do there. And if they've got the resume in front of them, then obviously they can follow along. But you're not getting into uh, any depth uh, of what the person's capable of. And as as you rightly say, it's like you should be able to expand on the resume. It's your damn resume. You wrote it. Um, why can't you expand on it, support it, enhance it, and and convince me that you know that what you say you did, you actually did. So yeah, I'm I'm a big believer in that. And then one last big subject. Um, I would say I don't know if you would agree, but um, I still think it's a tie between the current market 
and the uh, the dot com era, the 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 Y two K stuff, as being the hottest markets I've ever seen. Uh, meaning, there's more jobs by far than there are candidates. The only difference I think now is um, the demographics are even more uh, challenging. There's there's even less people of a certain age, and while Everybody here knows it would be a fireable offense if they didn't send somebody because they thought they were too old. We certainly see ageism in the real world. The candidates that we think are qualified, uh, companies uh, don't want to see, and they never tell us why, but we all know it's there's sort of a wink and a nod. Um, there is a certain reality to that that we can't change. Um, but there's no question that the demographics have made the market so intense. I mean, the 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 Fed rate, which is the Federal Reserve rate, um, when it for professionals is 2.2 percent. I mean, you know, five percent is full employment, so 2.2 percent means it's you got to hire people just to keep up with the people that are leaving for natural reasons. You know, uh, terminations, retirements, deaths. So, do you find yourself reading resumes differently, knowing how much in demand candidates are. In other words, are you compromising? Are you conceding? Or do you just say to yourself, I, I can't go there. I just, I got to hold out for the upper echelon. And if the job's open longer, out, that's fine. It's a great question, Danny. And I think, um, you know, when you speak about ageism, you, you know, I'm somebody who's approaching, you know, the age of 50 here in 2018. So it's near and dear yeah. to my heart. And I, I definitely think it exists. <laughs> I definitely think it exists in the world, and I've seen it myself over the last couple of years. And candidly, sometimes struggle myself, even you know, looking at candidates through that lens and not trying to be biased about people who are my own age. So I, right. I think that's a, that's a I really, I think that's a real, you know, real issue in the in the world today. Um, you know, but from the perspective of um, you know, moving things you know forward from a, a capabilities perspective. It's really important, you know, from my perspective to just focus on the individual candidates and their achievements. And, um, you know, I don't think I can afford from a leadership perspective to sacrifice my own quality standards and my own um, behavioral interviewing process to cut corners. Because when you do, you end up making hiring mistakes. And I don't think anybody in this podcast who might be listening doesn't understand the implications right. and costs of hiring the wrong candidate. And, um you know, that's been well documented um, over and over again, you know, never mind the economic impact, but also the cultural impact and uh, yeah. effect on others. Right. So from my perspective, I'm just as choosy now as I was ever. And I'd rather hire slow and, um, you know, fire fast when, you know, the signals indicate that that's the right thing you know, you, to do over and over and over again in my career. You know, the way you build, you know, teams uh, and collaboration and, and keep people on your staff is to, you know, build a great cut culture where people are, are performing and they're helping their peers um, and they're contributing to the greater good. So, you know, from my perspective, I can't afford to um, short circuit my, my, my standards to, and hire somebody who might be on the fringe. I've made that mistake in my career before. And um, yep. like everybody, like everybody who's hired people at scale has done, um, but it always comes back to haunt you and you're never going to bat a thousand. Um, but you know, your odds are greatly improved if you have the right methodology and process in place. 
Yeah, I, I totally agree. Yeah, it's 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 hard when jobs are open and you're not seeing uh, resumes and there's not a, a flow of candidates. To just go well. Let's let's find the best person we can. Um, but and recruiters get frustrated with it because they say, oh, you know, the market's so tough and he still won't, you know, compromise. And I'm like, that's your that's your biggest capital as a recruiter, that clients are still going to want great people, even in a good market, because they can get bad people without you. You know, they, they, they can go to monster.com and, and anybody on LinkedIn who's super active, uh, they don't need to pay you a fee for that. And I'm yeah, really, I, think um, it's, I think it's, yeah, a, you know, in, cl- in closing, Danny, I think it's, you know, from my perspective, it's got to be a bilateral um, situation in terms of the benefits, right? So I can stick to my, process and my methodology and be tough on my standards. But what I need to do more than ever is articulate to candidates how I can be a, a career trajectory changer for them, like how yeah. I can uh, how I can make them better at what they do, whether they stay with me for two years, four years or, or whatever it may be. And so I, I spend quite a bit of my time, you know, helping them understand how I operate, how I think I can you know, help them be more successful at they, what they do, you know, not only just economically, but in terms of their learning, their progression, their relationships, um, and, and how I can, like I said, make them better at what they do so that they're more marketable in the future. And I, I think that's a big differentiator is that it can't just be about um, us screening candidates any longer. It's got to be about how can we help them be, you know, more successful. Yeah, love that. And I love the, the the phrase career trajectory changer. And, you know, you and this is one of the reasons why you're so successful. Um, people said you've noticed much difference between the millennial recruiters that you've hired and the people you hired you know, back in the day. And, and, and you know, it'd be foolish to say there's no differences, although I do think people are people. And, you know, we had our Christmas party uh, luncheon and we had the same ugly Christmas sweater contest we've had for 20 years and it's as ugly as it is every year. It's just, it's horrible. But uh, people are people. But I have noticed among the younger recruiters, and this is why you're so effective, um, more than any generation I recall, certainly mine, I went to work for a company with an opportunity and a, and a, uh, a comp plan and a benefits package more than I ever did the younger people go to work for people. They go to work for you, your story, your charisma, your energy. Um, it's meaningful to them. Um, and we get, we get, we place a lot of people who say, you know, it's not that much different than my current job, but I want to work for Bob. You know, I, 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 I want to work for Carol. She's amazing. She, she can lead me. You know, there's a certain built in, um, need for mentorship, um, or leadership. Um, they, they just, they just want to hang with people that they think can make them better. Um, and, and that's, that's awesome. Uh, that's, that's, that's going to help us all in the long run. They'll be better for it. Absolutely. All right, well, sir. I will not keep you. Today, Danny. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. I, I'm just going to end this for my audience. I remember we said uh, the first resume was for Leonardo da Vinci. You know what he actually said in that letter to the Duke of Milan? He said this. He said, it's come to my attention that people of accomplishment rarely sit back and let things happen to them. They went out and happened to things. Smart guy. Jason, thanks so much for your time. Everybody, I will see you next time at the next podcast. Have a good day. Merry Christmas. Bye now.